from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. What they all seem to have foundationally is the respect for friendship, but also respect for family uh, and, and just this, you know, unconditional love from their families. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, they started to notice more and more that people actually were listening. How close did they come to just completely going out of business at this point? Well, the landlord was about to lock them out. <laughs> this was pretty bad. bad. I'm Sarah Fenske. The St. Louis Jewish Book Festival kicked off last week, and it's in full swing through Thursday. A host of luminaries fill this year's schedule, including Nathan Sharansky, Patrick Radden Keefe, and Francine Prose. Last week, I got to interview L.A.-based journalist Lisa Napoli before a live audience at the Jewish Community Center. The subject? Her book, Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, the extraordinary story of the founding mothers of NPR. It tells the story of public radio's early days and the four women who built it into a journalistic powerhouse. Today, we'll listen back to some highlights from that conversation. I started by asking Lisa about public radio's humble beginnings. She explained how the Public Broadcasting Act, signed by President Johnson in 1967, was the impetus for national public radio. Initially, it was supposed to just be the Public Television Act. Here, Lisa explains what changed that. It was a bunch uh, or a small group of zealous educational radio, non-commercial radio people, proponents, who insisted that this act uh, include radio, not just television. If you know or remember back to that point, a lot of people didn't want to think about radio in the 60s. Uh, it was an afterthought. TV was the king, and people were starting to worry about television and its impact on society, which is kind of interesting since we're talking about all of the impact of social media on society now. And uh, Back then, uh, the radio was left for dead, and these people made sure it got included. And if it hadn't, who knows? We might not be having this conversation right now. I might not have a job right you now. You might not have a job. So, <laughs> so yeah. So it's a good thing this all happened. So they begin this new national public radio outlet. And one of the people who was there almost from day one, Susan Stamberg. Oh, yeah. Susan Stamberg. Do everyone remember? Many people remember her. In the earliest days, she, uh, she, they all sort of accidentally wound up at this accidental location. But Susan um, is such a great story because it never had occurred to her to work in really in journalism, much less in radio. And she sort of back-ended into the place, not on air to begin with. In the beginning, she was just as a production assistant. She was actually working part-time as a new mom. And she was just, she embodied what sound they were trying to convey uh, better than any of the other people they hired who were all men. Um, so they put her on the air really as an afterthought because they needed somebody to sit in. And she was so much better than anybody else that she got the job and she had it and she put the place on the map. So it's interesting you mentioned that she was different than anybody else. The person who was the first program director, he disliked, quote, plastic 
faceless men. He didn't want that white male voice of authority. What was driving that for him? Well, so Bill Seemering was his name, and he's a wonderful man. He's 86, and he went on to help be instrumental in the launching of Terry Gross as as a national force. Uh, so he's a smart cookie. And back in the in the late 60s, early 70s, he had actually come from Wisconsin, uh, where he worked in what was then called educational radio. Then he went to Buffalo, and he was one of those people who really shaped educational media's transition to to public radio because he was so worried about the menacing force of commercial news. Uh, he, he really felt it was homogenous, it was reductive. You know, all the things that we say about a lot of the media today, he was saying back then, he was worried that it was too white, that it wasn't reflective of society. And in, in it, and, and it wasn't also geographically re- reflective. It, it had this, in his estimation, broadcast news, if you remember back then, it was three networks, had a very homogenous way of presenting the news, but also a very East Coast-centric bias. Uh, New York, D.C., um, the newspapers drove what got covered. And Bill just really knew better. He knew that there was a whole country out there that wasn't being covered or reflected. And uh, it was very important for him. He had this unbelievable chance of a lifetime to create this new network, and he wanted to make sure that it actually did reflect back the country and all of its diversity. Uh, And so he was ardent about finding people who didn't repeat, you know, in in someone else's hands, uh, National Public Radio, and to some extent PBS, which was completely separate, might have just mimicked exactly what you heard on ABC, CBS, and NBC. But in Bill Seemering's hands, that wasn't the case. Hmm. And that's how someone like Susan, because up till then women were not allowed to be on the air in any serious role, that's how somebody like Susan broke through. And also, as you make clear in the book, Linda Wertheimer, um, she's sort of an example. She comes from New Mexico, just just kind of this dusty town. Um, and yet, you know, as you explain, for a woman who wanted to be a journalist, like she did from a very early age, mm-hmm. this was something where so few roads were open to these women. Oh, yeah. And especially, like you say, her. She was the daughter of a grocer from Carlsbad, New Mexico. And, um, you know, her father worked hard. Everybody in town knew and loved him. He was very well respected. But it never would have occurred to her that she could be on the air delivering the news. She wanted to be an assistant to Edward R. Murrow until she saw Pauline Frederick on the air. And she said, that could be me, too. Uh, So she, for her, um, making her way to D.C. involved getting a scholarship that got her to a really excellent college. And because of that, it opened doors. Time and again in this book, you hear the, you see examples of the stories that we all know to be true, that if you model something, someone uh, publicly, you can give someone inspiration for to have higher ambition. And if you allow people to get the best education possible, whatever that means for them, that's going to open doors too. And Linda, definitely that was true. 
for her. So those are two of the four founding mothers. And I feel like your narrative started to get so fun and so zesty when Nina Totenberg shows up. <laughs> I had no idea. I've been listening to Nina Totenberg's coverage of the Supreme Court for years. I had no idea she was such a character. Well, and the thing is that she's done it for so long now that we just take it for granted. You know, the voices, the operatic voices of the justices. Uh, but if you think back, before Nina Totenberg started doing what she was doing, nobody really thought about the Supreme Court, unless that was your thing. The average person, not that any of us are average here, but <laughs> regular news consumers didn't draw themselves to, to Justice Department stories or, or Supreme Court stories um, as a matter of course, but she elevated it. And yes, her background, um, both with her father being a famous concert violinist, Holocaust survivor, and um, a character himself. He lived a very long life and was teaching up until his pretty much last breath. Um, but Nina, too, uh, like Linda, always wanted to be a journalist, didn't quite know how to make her way because it was hard for women then, um, and didn't make it in the conventional way mm -hmm. that, that you have probably, you know, going through younger the motion. Younger women can. But young women can now. Yeah. They couldn't then. So. And not young, younger. <laughs> but young. yes. <laughs> young. So Nina finds her way, becomes a star. That brings us to the fourth woman in this quartet that you're writing about. And it feels like Cokie Roberts, of all of them, was the woman who was almost born to do this. She had the perfect biography to be a Washington correspondent. But she was the one who didn't see this for herself for a long time. Isn't that the funniest thing? That you, you know, who can imagine that Cokie Roberts didn't out of the womb say, I'm going to be a congressional reporter. I'm going to be Cokie Roberts. But of course, she didn't. And um, she wanted to get married and have kids when she got out of uh, Wellesley. And uh, she came from a storied congressional background. And since we are at the Jewish Book Festival, I love that Cokie Roberts, who was educated by nuns, is the most observant Jewish person in the crowd of the four <laughs> women because she married a nice Jewish boy whose family wasn't even observant, um, but she was so, it, faith was so important to her, and she knew she and her husband weren't going to convert, but she wanted to honor his faith, and so she became steeped in the cultural and religious traditions of Judaism, which I think is just a testament to her. But she, um, she really back-ended into journalism, and uh, everybody's of course, the better for it. But it's a great story, too, that, you know, it's not always just right out of the gate that you know your path. She knew her path. She wanted to be a wife and a mother, and she got that, did that, and then she navigated around. And a lot of it, all four of the women said many times that a lot of it was timing as mm -hmm. much as anything. You know, yes, they were super talented and committed, but they they came into the, the world that they entered at a, at a ripe time for them. And so they ended up really putting their stamp on this fledgling organization. Did they get credit in real time for the work they were doing? I mean, it, you get the sense that this station for a long time was kind of flying under the radar. Yes. Yes, it was, but a lot of D.C. was noticing that these women were running around. Well, Susan wasn't running around. She was in the studio, but the other three women were running around with their microphones, scaring a lot of guys in Washington. And um, 
they were noticing that women were delivering serious news for the first time because it was the first time that women did that. Uh, or I shouldn't say the first time, but it was one of the first times in broadcasting in particular. So they, um, they definitely didn't get their due financially. They were grossly underpaid uh, in the early days, as were all their colleagues. But they, um, they had this sense, and it's an exciting sense, as you know, when you work for a new organization, when you, it, it's like, let's put on a show. We did opening night and there were some people and then by the fifth night there were, the, the house was packed. And that's sort of that ramp up that they had that they all witnessed with their early days. It's kind of like we're talking into the wind and then all of a sudden they started to notice more and more that people actually were listening. And they, uh, of course, they loved that and they felt ownership of the place in a different way than you would if you came into it later and got hired because you know, they knew they'd built it. And is it your sense that they were drawn to each other and they bonded as colleagues pretty much from the get-go? Yeah, I mean, that's the other amazing story because I think because there were so few women, uh, they they connected and bonded, but they it you know we've all worked in places where you had that one person who becomes your lifelong friend. Some people marry people at the office too, <laughs> but in this case, they really it really was as if they were all meant to be friends, um, much less colleagues, and they were that. They were in equal measure friends. Well, I would say actually more friends than colleagues at the end because they supported one another as. Husbands became ill, and children were born, and family needs came up, and they really were a very tight team, which unfortunately is not, mm-hmm. as most of us know who've worked, uh, not how every workplace is. Not every office has that level of camaraderie. Right. Yeah. And they went through some tough times together. We're going to talk about just a really interesting part of that in a minute. But, but before we get to that, something that was interesting in this book that had never occurred to me Um, was you get into how some of them balanced family and their jobs. In Susan Stamberg's case, the choice she made was very surprising. Can you talk a bit about how she did this? It would be really hard for a woman who was not a major superstar, and even actually if she was a major superstar, um, to negotiate being able to go home in the middle of the show to have dinner with her family. I mean, that's not... I, that would not yeah. happen now, right? Like she you did said, this for years. She did it for a long time. She did it for a long time. And actually, you know, when she first came to NPR as a production assistant, she said she only wanted to work part-time, and they made that, um, they relaxed the rules for her. But yes, that's, she was very ardent about being home for holidays, also very hard to do in the media in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, she was very committed to being with her family, and yet she was very committed to what she was doing, and she had the leverage, and she knew how to work it as she got more and more famous. So, but very, yes, very unusual. And I got the sense maybe that being in this place where they were all so underpaid, that that may have played a, fa- a role too, that this, they had some leverage there because these weren't necessarily jobs that men were dying to do. Right. Right. Yeah, they had to be um, rewarded somehow because they weren't getting rewarded with the big bucks. So they yeah. had to have flex they time. They had there. to have some sort of flex time. Yeah. But it was hard. I mean, it was not typical. That's journalist Lisa Napoli. She spoke with me last week in front of a live audience at the J about her book, Susan, Linda, Nina, and Cokie The Extraordinary Story of the Founding Mothers of NPR. 
While the book tells the story of the four women whose voices defined NPR, it also tells the story of a man. Frank Mankiewicz played an integral role in NPR's story, and a dramatic one. Ooh, thank you. This is such an amazing character that you've just delivered to me. Reality is always better than fiction. So Frank Mankiewicz, uh, son of the storied Hollywood director or Hollywood family, the Mankiewicz family, um, was not in the family business. He'd gone into politics. He'd been Bobby Kennedy's press secretary. Uh, he was well known around D.C. and he had some journalistic background. And he was in between jobs, writing books. Very interesting career. I mean, reading his books, reading his, he made documentaries. Very interesting person, uh, and larger than life person. And so NPR was at a at a pivotal moment in the 70s, in the late 70s. Uh, it was, you know, six, seven years old at that point, and they needed a, a marquee person to run the place. The people who'd run it before were not sexy in any way in the sense of, you know, wearing well around Washington. They didn't know how to glad hand, and they needed a front man who was dynamic in that way. And Frank Mankiewicz, couldn't, there, there couldn't have been anybody better than Frank Mankiewicz to do that because he had the journalistic chops. He understood the politics of D.C. And he had this passion for this place that he'd never heard of because most people hadn't in 1977 heard of NPR. So he came in and there was only one problem and that was he didn't really care about the budget. He was <laughs> one of those idea guys, you know, up here, not in the weeds. And he left the financial management of the place to um, some people who he shouldn't have, and he didn't really oversee it. And what could go wrong? Well, everything could go wrong. So yes. I mean, the, the whole thing went catastrophically awry. But before that, I got the sense he really did elevate the profile. I mean, it seems like a great example of this is this interview Susan Stamberg did with Jimmy Carter. Yes. Tell, tell us about this. Yes, it was so amazing to read about that. And maybe somebody here remembers that. But back before we were a 24-7 universe and, uh, you know, you had C-SPAN allowing you to peer into every aspect of governance, whether you wanted to or not, and certainly before cable channels did that and NPR did that. Um, it was a really big deal for the president to actually speak to the people. So funny to think about that now because now the presidents tweet to the people. But um, back in those days, in the 70s, uh, President Carter, who was an interesting person in and of himself, a unique force, um, agreed to go on live national radio and answer questions from the people. It's so anachronistic, I mean, so strange to think, wow, this, that's a big deal. My editor of this book was 40, 41, so he didn't really, he had to think about the timing, because, yeah. you know, it's like, what a, but Susan was the person sitting across from the president in the Oval Office as they were taking questions from the people. And um, she did it with aplomb and just 
you know, grace. And, and this drew national publicity that yeah, the president had done this interview. It was such a big deal that people got to submit questions. They wrote them in on postcards. And, you know, there was somebody who was cataloging all these postcards that came in and choosing them like a lotto ticket to, you know, who got the, the right to ask the president a question. It was a big deal. But yes, that's how, that was a Frank Mankiewicz brainchild, as was, by the way, he would go to the Supreme Court and was trying to convince them to let them broadcast their proceedings on on the air, which, of course, did not happen. An but idea whose, whose time has still not come. Still not come. But, right, exactly. But So he's an idea guy. He was an idea guy. Had some guy. great ideas. And then all of a sudden, we find out NPR is, is broke. Yep. Like, how close do you think, looking back on this, how close did they come to just completely going out of business at this point? Well, the landlord was about to lock them out. <laughs> this That's was pretty bad. bad. That's pretty bad. And, um, yeah, they were not making about to make payroll, which is also pretty bad, Very especially bad. when you're not paying people really well. So they're living check to check. It was it was pretty catastrophic. So this book, by the way, was not written with um, in collaboration in any way with NPR. Mm-hmm. So um, that's, there's some warts and all yeah, going it's on. It's definitely not which a, is what makes it a good read. I frankly, think so. I hope so. I hope so. So what brought them back from the brink? As you say, this could have gone either way. Well, the women, the women rose to the fore. The women did not want to see this place that they'd worked so hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, to build, go down. Uh, and as I always say when I do a talk like this, it, it, you know, if any one of those women at that point had risen, raised her hand and said, I'll, I'll take over, they probably would, somebody probably would have put her in charge. But they didn't do that. But they did rally around Congress. They did rally around their peers, of course, many of whom were very well healed, um, to get support. And, and um, they just, they, they helped to fundraise, even though fundraising was kind of a moot point. Mm-hmm. But they, they rallied. They rallied. And, and so it was basically a bailout. Yeah, it okay. was a bailout. And so they were able to lobby for this bailout. Yep, yep. So if I were these women, and I am smarter than any of the men in the room, and I've been, you know, single-handedly keeping this station going, I feel like I would have been really angry at how much Frank Mankiewicz was getting paid, how little I was getting paid, the fact that I'm keeping this station going, and this guy just kind of submarines in. What do you think kept them from just giving up, just being so frustrated at the bad management that at that point they could have probably gone on to much better jobs? They loved their jobs, and they felt this connection. I mean, it's amazing that Koki, even after she went all TV, still wanted to keep her job in radio. Uh, She just felt this affinity for the medium, for the same reason that people love to listen to it, people love to work in it. And uh, they just, it's funny, they, they were angry with Frank, but I don't think anyone, you know, they all made their peace with him later because they also appreciated how he helped elevate mm. the, the collective good. They were elevating their own good. And, you know, because they were so good at what they did, they were elevating the um, respect for the network. But uh, he, he brought it up to a new level while at the same time nearly running it into the ground. So they, they had that conflicted feeling about him. So, 
So you, you know, this is kind of the, the central drama is, is how NPR managed to survive this terrible thing. From there, would you say it was fairly smooth sailing or was there a lot of drama that continued for decades oh, on end? Yeah. I mean, running a news organization costs a lot of money. And it's what I find interesting is what I loved about researching this book and my book about Ted Turner and CNN is that in the course of my working life, I just turned 58, in the course of my career, the whole world has changed enormously. Satellites, and I covered the New York Times when when um, the web was coming on. So the, the New York Times had a web site, and I worked for it, and we were sort of marginalized, and now the digital part of the New York Times keeps the whole place afloat. So it's it, watching the unfolding media culture of the last decades, um, just shows you, and if you do that as a consumer or as a creator of it, it's it's not easy, it's not inexpensive, and so that's a long way of saying that uh, Joan Crock helped bail out NPR when she died in 2003. A much more recent bailout. Yes, a much and, and an unintentional one. She mm-hmm. didn't. She left a, a huge slice of her fortune to NPR, but she didn't realize, I mean, she knew that they needed it, but she didn't understand, she didn't, it wasn't a, a, a directed gift. They could do with it what they wanted, and that helped them write the ship that they needed to expand, because their problem was, the network's problem was, that because of all this other uh competition from cable outlets and just the acceleration of the news cycle to to compete with that they needed more people you needed many more people to do that and so to expand to do that as well as to offer the international coverage that's necessary isn't cheap and so they expanded but they didn't have the money it wasn't in a fiscally egregious way the way it was during the Frank Mankiewicz era so it's, it's getting in the weeds a lot. But the answer to your question is it wasn't just an upward trajectory from the moment that Frank got run out of town. It was... Um, <laughs> they continued to fight in the trenches. And they and they had to change their business model. Their business model before was very different than what it is today, where you give money to local stations, which then pay for the programming from the mothership, from NPR. It wasn't like that until Doug Bennett, the, the, predator, the um, man who followed Mankiewicz, uh, instituted that system, which is the, the current system that made much more economic sense. So, so something I found myself curious about, you know, these women kind of fashioned this, um, uh, this news outlet in their own image by being the founding mothers and by being the public face of this. And yet, as you report in your book, even through the 90s, they were making significantly less than some male colleagues whose names we would never remember today. Yep. That was sort of jarring to me. Yep. It sure is. <laughs> what do you take from that as, as a woman and as an investigative reporter, somebody who worked on this book? It, it, life is not fair, but we knew that already. Yeah. And it's, it's um, even places that you think would be higher-minded uh, and more equitable aren't always. Uh, you know, interestingly, too, a, a union came in to NPR in the 70s on the watch of these women who were very active in the union, and that helped elevate things. So it's very curious that even with the union, it yeah. still wasn't equitable, uh, and certainly it wasn't diverse. 
um, in terms of racial diversity uh, for a long time. There were studies in the first 10 years of, of Corporation for Public Broadcasting and NPR's existence that analyzed why women and people of color didn't have jobs equal, you know, or, or commensurate with their population jobs. And it's the same conversation we have today, but they were having it in the 70s. So it's, um, I don't know what to make of it. Life is just not fair. And it's terrible. So I don't the, mean to make little of it. The story you tell of these four women, it, it kind of comes to a conclusion with Cokie Roberts' funeral. She's the one who's, who's now gone. And this was such a sad story. And yet... There was something that was so inspiring about the fact that up until her death, these four women were such a support for each other. Can yes. you talk a little bit about the role they played in each other's lives, even up until that that terrible end? Oh, they had three of them had dinner every Saturday night with their husbands. Susan wasn't there usually until later on, um, but Nina, uh, Nina, Linda, and Susan all were best friends, and they would hang out uh, and. When there was a physical illness, someone would go to the hospital and they would just, they were like sisters. It was a sisterly organization. When Nina's first husband died, they were all there at the bedside helping um, Senator Floyd Haskell. I mean, they, they just really uh, had a terrific relationship with each other that endured till the very last. And Will, I'm sure, in their case, the case of the women who are left. So yeah, that was inspirational. And um, it's it's people ask me, you know, what can what can my kids do to make sure my grandkids grow up like these women? And really, what they all seem to have foundationally is the respect for friendship, but also respect for family, uh, and and just this, you know, unconditional love from their families. Mm. Yeah. What's the most, what's the thing that you learned while researching this book that surprised you the most? I think, I think just how precarious things were for NPR at the beginning. Having worked for startups, I knew that startups don't come out of the gate like CNN, you know, the, taking over the world. But I, I don't think I really was aware of the roots of public broadcasting, nor how shaky they were at the start nor that 12 years in that Frank Mankiewicz, I didn't, I don't think I knew that Frank Mankiewicz was president, nor that he almost assassinated the place. Yeah. 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 I feel like that's a story that you, you don't hear much. No, they don't <laughs> want you to know about that. It's a, and it's a, it's a great story. It's good. Thank you. I think it's a fun one. And he's an amazing character. This episode was produced by Sarah Fenske, with audio engineering by Iron Man Sound and editing by Laura Hamden. This podcast was mixed by Aaron Dorr. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.